I had a very strange childhood. I had the worst case any doctor had ever seen. My job is to keep healing. So that is the story. We all have remarkable stories within us. Stories of adversity, challenges, triumphs, and ultimately of healing. This is Your Health, Your Story, the podcast. In recent years, the surge in chronic childhood conditions has reached unprecedented levels, affecting at least 54% of U.S. children. Our guest today is an author, educator, and former healthcare consultant, and she joins us to discuss the pressing health crisis affecting our kids. She's passionate about the empowering role parents play in aiding their children's recovery, even when faced with conditions deemed permanent. This is the story of Documenting Hope with Beth Lambert. Beth, so glad to have you on. Oh, thank you, Casper. Happy to be with you. You know, when I think about what's going on right now with children, with healthcare, with medicine, with our society, I always, and I've referenced this quote quite a bit from Nelson Mandela, that there can be no keener revelation of society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. So I kind of want to start there. And before even going into why you did this, how do you feel about what's going on right now as far as is society's soul somewhat blackened because of the way we're treating children right now? I mean, it's arguable that we are doing a terrible job with the next generation. Whether our soul is blackened or not, I don't know. But I think most people aren't even aware that's a problem until they become a parent or if they're an educator or if they're you know in a setting where they see children day in and day out and they have the benefit of knowing what children looked like 20 years ago as opposed to today. So there's many people that, again, are not aware of it until they actually see it in front of them. And for many people, that's when they become a parent. And when they become a parent, they start realizing there's an issue when their child has some kind of symptom or diagnosis, and it's not a symptom or diagnosis that they've seen before in their family. And, you know, so people are starting to wake up to this. But we do have a massive, massive problem that I don't even think the current statistics are capturing. So you said 54% of American children have at least one chronic illness or diagnosis. That's a statistic from 2011. And there's no epidemiologist that I know of that has done a further study into where we are today. You know, over 10 years later, what is it? Is it 70% of kids? Is it 65? We don't even know. But if you're somebody who deals with children on a day-in, day-out basis, you see it. You see the symptoms. You see the IEPs. You see the diagnoses. You see the problems. You see the special ed classrooms. I mean, it's, it's a massive tsunami. It's a tidal wave of issues. And I just don't think people are even aware that it's there yet. Like speaking of general society, we just don't see it yet. It's true. I mean, these numbers, you always have to question these numbers, as we've seen, medicine can do a very good job of showing something in one light or the other, depending on where the money goes. Right. But you have to realize that more and more children, if you just look anecdotally at your own experience, right? When I was growing up, it was very rare. I didn't, there was a word really for autism. ADHD was very uncommon. You had hyperactivity in some children. You had some children in the, you know, different classes, but it was very, very uncommon. Even right. obesity was, you know, you had some children that are a little bit big boned, you could say, and other things, but it wasn't at the rate it is now. And I think a big question then is, okay, if, if the numbers aren't alone, but anecdotally we're seeing this, we understand that if you just look around and speak with others, this is trending in the wrong direction. Then comes up the question, well, why? What's mm-hmm. changed to do this? And I remember being around a table with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. at a dinner I was invited to and him asking this question of everyone. And mm-hmm. everyone had just such different answers and it was all over the place. His hypothesis was a lot more glyphosate-based and the microbiome leading to this and that. 
Do you have an answer for why this is that? Or is it just so such a large kind of, you know, answer to go into? But I, I feel like you need those whys to really illustrate the issue at hand and start to solve it. Yeah, I do have an answer. I feel like we can confidently say now why so many kids are experiencing different kinds of health problems or developmental problems. And the answer is that it is the totality of modern living. Mm -hmm. That's the answer. Okay, it's a cumulative and synergistic impact of living in the modern world. Well, that's for most people that kind of just rings hollow. Like, what does that even mean? So that's the simple answer. The more complicated, detailed answer is all the things that you mentioned. It's the microbiome, the glyphosate, the exposure to antibiotics, it's the chemical, mm -hmm. it's the artificial light, it's the the rhythm and pace of modern living. You know, we stay have kids that are up till 11 o'clock on devices, and then, you know, they get up at 6 a.m. to go to a swim practice, and then they go to school, and it's a crazy intense pace. So, you know, you could go into any number of individual factors, okay? like let's say BPA. You could take bisphenol A, an endocrine disrupting chemical, and you could find lots of medical literature that links it to autism. You could also find, take antibiotics, another individual factor, and find lots of medical literature that links it to autism. You could go down the list like that, you know, uh, proton pump inhibitors, and it's linked to autism, sanitizing chemicals, and they're linked to autism. There's so many factors. So what we call this is the total load. Again, the total load means the cumulative and synergistic impact of living in the modern world. And essentially, it means our kids have too many things in their day-to-day -day life, as well as what they were affected by, you know, prenatally and neonatally. And not enough health supports. So like your body has a certain level of resilience, right? And that's dependent upon what kind of stressors it has and what kind of supports it has. And so you think about support, supports would be like nutrition, exposure to sunlight, fresh air, clean water, movement. Those are things that make you more robust and more resilient, right? But our kids come into this world not getting those supports, right? Because we're inside all the time and we're eating processed synthetic food that are nutrient depleted no supports. And then you're asking these little tiny bodies to deal with a chemical overload, to deal with electromagnetic radiation, to deal with artificial lights that are stressing the body. And that's documented in the medical literature too. So what are these kids going to do without this total load that's too much and not enough health supports? And the reason why this is so crucial for kids, I mean, this is true for all humans on planet earth right now. We're all dealing with too many stressors and not enough health supports, but kids get this total load on their itty bitty little bodies when they're going through critical developmental stages. So like the body is learning how to see, how to process visual stimulus. It's learning how to hear and process auditory stimulus. It is learning how to walk, how to talk, how to interpret complex, nuanced human relationships. That's what a normal human baby needs to do as it goes from zero to three. But now you're asking that child to also process all the indoor chemicals, the flame retardants, the heavy metals, you know, all the things that they're assaulted with on a daily basis. And guess what? A human body always prioritizes survival mm -hmm. over development. So what happens? They're going to prioritize survival and then they're not going to develop along their normal trajectory. And that's where you get the neurobehavioral and neurodevelopmental conditions like autism and ADHD and learning disabilities and all these kinds of things that are a function of development. So our kids are, you know, absolutely bearing the brunt of modern living and its negative effects on health because they get it when they're developing. And so they're stuck, you know? Yeah. It's such a multi-systemic, multifaceted issue. You're right. It's the food supply. It's medicine in general. It's injecting a child with a hepatitis B vaccine, like within 10 minutes of birth when what's the point of that? And all these things you can lead up to the thousands of things that impact a child on a daily basis. 
But then that starts to become an incredibly, it looks like overwhelming solution to reverse this. And for a parent, that becomes, I can't learn all of this. I can't learn about, you know, what's in every single food product versus how to tell if my child is becoming too stressed with the social life, all of these things. Mm-hmm. Is is that kind of the purpose where you're going with documenting hope your organizations is to empower people to make small little decisions and improve every day? Is that what you're trying to do? Yeah. I mean, first, we want to make sure we understand the scope of the problem. So we have two research studies that are underway right now. One of them is called the CHIRP study, and it's the most comprehensive survey, a parent-reported survey that I know of that looks at all the things that might be influencing a child's health. So things going back multiple generations, like did grandma, you know, live through a war-torn era? Was grandpa subjected to racism? Like all the way down through what happened preconception, what happened prenatally, what is happening to the child right now in terms of what they're putting on their skin, what they're eating, how many vaccines did they have, how many rounds of antibiotics, like anything that might fit into that picture of what developed into a chronic condition or what maybe didn't. But we want to know what happens for healthy kids too. That study we're doing so that we can, again, understand all the variables, the thousands of them. I mean, this question is over a thousand questions long and really understand which are the most impactful, like which ones are really, really negatively impacting our children's health and which ones are there, but maybe aren't as significant so that we can help parents prioritize the most significant factors and the things that they should avoid. So that's important. But going to your original question about like, how do you navigate this when it's so overwhelming? I think it's important for people to remember the reason that we're in this situation with our kids and all of our health really is because we have moved very far away from the way humans live naturally in sync with nature. Mm-hmm. So if you look at how we used to live just 150 years ago, totally different way of living, you know, like our food came directly to us from the earth or, you know, animals, animal products, unadulterated, there wasn't processing and packaging and preservatives and chemicals. And like the industrial revolution really changed the way Americans live. Yeah. And so that goes down to even just our biorhythms, like when we go to bed and when we wake up, and that's hugely important for your body and your resilience. So the advice I have to parents when they start thinking about, oh my gosh, do I need to know what's in that label? Like the 75 chemicals that are in my toothpaste, do I need to know what all of them are and which ones are safe? And I don't know. The simple answer to that is do what is closest to nature yes. and reject as many things as you can that are new to nature. Mm-hmm. So when you're navigating the grocery aisles, you just pick up the things that have two ingredients or don't have ingredients at all. Like, you know, for food, whole foods, simple, yeah. just eat whole foods, right? Yeah. And I know it's more complex than that because we have kids who are complex in their chronic illness and maybe they can't tolerate all kinds of health foods or whole foods. But the point is, as a general rule, the closer you get to nature in everything you do, the closer you live to how grandma lived, the better mm-hmm. you be able to navigate this modern world. And it means change. Right. Like if you live a super digital life where everything in your house is a smart device and, you know, you live odd hours because we have, you know, lights that keep us up all night long. You got to reel back that kind of that rhythm and that pace and sync back up again with the way humans have lived for millennia. Right. Right. Thousands of years we've lived with a certain rhythm in our life. We've eaten a certain type of food. We've not used products like products are new, like all these chemical consumer products. That's new to the human body. Human body is like, I don't even know what to do with that stuff, you know, because I've been adapting for thousands of years to everything that's in nature. And all of a sudden you're bringing all these like petroleum based products into me and I don't know what those are. So that's a mindset we need to adopt in order to safely live in the modern world. 
Yeah. I find a big issue with that alone is like education and empowerment are great, but you got to have kind of a purpose in it all and a passion because the truth is that it's very easy to do what, you know, just go in and buy something that's going to have a long expiration date and sit on the shelf and have lots of preservatives and be easy to just throw it in the microwave, serve it to your child five minutes. There's no meal prep. There's no anything else there. But then you actually have to sacrifice a little bit. And in sacrifice, people are willing to do it usually when it comes to things like vanity cases. You know, if it's something you look better and you attract, yeah. you know, people, we go to the gym, we pay a lot of money for cosmetic surgeries and things like that as a vanity metric in some mm -hmm. way. But health somehow isn't, I've realized. And even when you bring it up to parents, and I've sent a lot of my friends who are parents articles about, okay, don't use the microwave, maybe go to more cooking and going to your local you know, grocer and buying stuff that's fresh and just putting a little bit more time into the dinner prep and everything. And they appreciate it, they say, but they don't actually act on it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, their children usually do have some issues. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times it's this ability to say, well, my doctor told me it's just genetics and they'll just outgrow it maybe or have to live with it for the rest mm -hmm. of their lives. So then you get into this kind of idea that whether I cook for them or not doesn't really matter because the doctor told me they're on the medication that helps them. How do we break through that, though? Because I think there's information out there. Everyone knows that by now McDonald's is not healthy, mm -hmm. yet it's incredibly convenient. It's cheap. It's easy to get. It's abundant. So people go there for that reason. But, you know, we got to do something more, right? What What do you feel is that, how do we get health prioritized over convenience, cost, and ease? Well, I think the root of the problem is that this is cultural. Yes. So the reason why we have so many sick kids today is because of our culture. And so what you're asking someone to do to protect their child's health is to live counter culture. And just mm. think about that for a minute. Like, what is one of the most fundamental things of being a human being? It's belonging, right? It's feeling like yes. I am normal. I am part of this culture. I do what everyone else does. I'm good. I'm safe. So you're asking someone to step out of their safety zone and say, I don't belong in this culture. I belong in a different counterculture. And that counterculture is health-oriented, you know, does things differently, takes the time to cook. So that's problem number one, right? Problem number two is that, our culture has this fixation on this notion of genetic determinism. You just said mm -hmm. it a minute ago. You go to your doctor and your doctor is like, I don't really know why your child has this asthma that lands them in the hospital twice a month. I don't really know why your child has autism. It's probably genetic. And there's some basis for that. There are genes do matter. There is absolutely importance to genes, but they're a fraction of the whole picture. And so as long as we're stuck in this genetic determinism mindset, we're going to have to throw our hands up and be like, my child has autism. I don't, there's nothing I can do except for just, you know, accept yeah. and love him, which we should do anyway. We should accept and love our children. But what we need to do is shift our mindset about what's possible. I think the answer lies in if we can get rid of this idea of genetic determinism, that your health is, and the health outcomes are tied solely to that, to your mm -hmm. genes, and instead say your health and your child's health, their diagnosis is a function of what you're doing every single day. Then all of a sudden, the responsibility comes back to mom and dad. It comes back to you as a person to take care of your own health. Like, you didn't get bad luck genes. That's not what this is about. You might have landed in a bad luck culture, right? Like, there are other cultures living on this planet that are, like, thriving. They have no heart disease, no cancer, no autism. They landed in a good luck culture. But what we need to do is accept that we have control over this, 
that this is part of our responsibility to take care of our own human bodies and especially our children because they're not making the choices. They're not going to the grocery store. They're not, you know, making the schedule for the day. It is our moral responsibility. It's in fact a moral imperative for mm -hmm. us to start paying attention to how we are raising our kids. And we have to keep bring them into that counterculture. So the other way I think we solve this is we start making counterculture cool again, yes. right? So like, I think, we, and I actually think we're halfway there. I, I mm -hmm. started this whole journey like maybe 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago. And when I did, nobody was talking about organic food. And like, I think Jeffrey Smith was starting to talk about GMOs and they might be bad. So there were like a few of these things on the periphery. No one was talking about the microbiome. No one was talking about chemicals, you know? And here we are, fast forward almost 20 years later, and like people are talking about it. And there are parents who are like, yeah, no, I don't want that sunscreen on my kid because it's got, you know, oxybenzone in it. And I know that that's bad. So it's changing. It's definitely changing. But we got to hurry this up because yeah. kids don't have time for us to wait. Like if we want to have heart disease and cancer as older adults, that's fine. That is like you're, you do you. But when it comes to our kids, they don't have time because this is a developmental thing. There's a window to keep them healthy, safe, and developing along a normal trajectory. So I feel like, you know, the adults need to step up and solve this soon. Yeah, it is interesting that you say that. It's like you're in the minority now if you're healthy and you're kind of <laughs> considered a rebel, right, for being yeah. healthy. Where in the past, it was like rebels were like rock stars, like drug, sex, rock and roll. And yeah. now it's like, you know, to be a rebel, it's like healthy, go out in nature, eat like, you know, grow a farm or a garden. Yeah. Like that's that's seen as rebellious when that was just sort of, you know, your average kind of person back in the day. So it's funny how things cycle around. And I do agree, we have to be rebels to the norm, but the norm isn't just societal norm. I think it's also governmental healthcare, you know, big organizations, big food, big pharma, right? All of these companies make massive profits as you get sick. Mm -hmm. How do we start to combat that? Because I've seen what I've noticed in the past few years is that, you know, yeah, religion isn't the God anymore. It's kind of science is the God, but even above that money is everyone's God. They will easily put other people, you know, below them for mm -hmm. profits, for money, seeking it. And companies mm -hmm. will do more nefarious things and get away with it as long as there's money, as long as everyone, you know, gets a cut of it. It's okay mm -hmm. that we put children last in a sense. Mm -hmm. Is this more of a we as people need to push back or at the same time, do regulations have to start kicking in to say enough is enough? We can't allow these companies to get away with this. I think if you asked me that question 20 years ago, I probably would have been like wide eyed and be like, yes, we have to get the government to change its policies and we yep. can do it. <laughs> as Robert Kennedy talks about now, the agencies are so captured that like I'm not really putting a whole lot of hope into that basket so I really firmly believe that the change happens at the grassroots level. And I think it happens through community. And it's something that we're trying to build is like, you know, every again, everyone feels like on an island when they do wake up to what's happening to our kids and they do wake up to how toxic our culture is. Then they start feeling like by themselves, like here I am all by myself. I'm the only one growing my vegetables. I'm feeling like crunchy and nobody likes crunchy. It's not cool. <laughs> like that dynamic. The minute you take that person and connect them to the other person and connect them to another person, and then they're all part of a network and they're like, oh my gosh, you see things the same way I do, then you feel empowered. And then slowly over time, it becomes a movement. And this is what I've seen before. 20 years ago, no one was talking about this. Now you have groups of people who are finding that they, they have this affinity for health and wellness, and it's actually becoming this nascent movement. So I do have a lot of optimism about that because I think it's like this bubbling up and it's a grassroots movement that's coming. It just needs more organization. It needs yeah. more push. 
And it needs more urgency. Again, like if adults want to go off and just live their life and be sick, that's fine. You know, again, these are our kids. We need this grassroots cultural shift to happen soon because these kids need us to support them. Absolutely. When you talk about like the biggest issues in the world right now, I don't see how you don't put that almost first, the health of our children. Because even if you look at things like climate change, which many people would say is the number one issue to deal with, I think governments and people have agreed that's a huge one. We have a planet to live on. But I've always believed just as you look at, you know, the microbiome so much for human health, we are the microbiome of Earth. Mm-hmm. If we are not healthy, the earth is not healthy. We just don't make healthy choices then. We use lots of plastics and throw it away. We don't care about littering and all these things. And we cut corners in in a bad way that impacts the health of the planet. So I feel like that should be what we're talking about more is the health of children that will be the next generation that then will breed more children and put it on. But we're trending in the opposite way, right? Mm -hmm. We're trending in a way where the parents are now kind of instilling these things in children that will lead probably to even more so. And you look Mm -hmm. at things like even usage of social media or just iPads and cell phones and how much. If that becomes common for parents, then what would stop, you know, them from having children that then have, you know, right out like uh, in the crib looking at the iPhone and kind of doing all of that? Do you feel that that needs to be addressed a lot to social media technology? You know, I remember Bill Mayer made a fuss of being like social media and technology are the new cigarettes. They're addictive. Mm-hmm. They rot your brain. They know what they're doing. They're profitable in that way. And, and now we have children, you know, on that. How much mm-hmm. of this issue has to be about limiting the exposure to technology and going back to putting kids in nature first? Well, I mean, technology is definitely one of the major stressors, like categories of stressors. In our study that I mentioned before, we have yep. categories of stressors. It'd be chemical stressors, pharmaceutical stressors, EMF exposure and technology exposure is its own category. And it ranks very high in terms of like you look at all the data. We've been collecting data since 2018 to see how tightly is that, you know, each category correlated with worse health outcomes. And that's right up there, believe it or not. Most people don't even believe that the digital life is harmful, but it really is on so many levels. I mean, you, we could dissect it. Is it the electromagnetic radiation? Is it the, you know, the what it does to relationships? Is it the fact that it's, you know, bringing kids indoors under artificial light and being stagnant and not moving? Like there's so many variables there that explain why it's harmful to kids' health. It's absolutely a problem that we have to, I do think we have to think about that as one of several categories of stressors that need limits for all of us, for kids, sugar would be another one. Sugar is ubiquitous in this society, like absolutely ubiquitous. Like everybody that goes in for a coffee is getting like a sugar bomb dump into their blood system every single time they go to Starbucks. And we've normalized that, right? So just like you said, smoking, we don't allow our kids to smoke. Mm -hmm. We don't allow them to use illicit drugs. We need to put similar limitations. I'm not saying to make sugar illegal. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we need to understand the poison that it is to our bodies and put limitations on it. Similarly with the tech and the technology, like there are people who set limits. Like I'm not going to let my child get a phone or a device or whatever until ninth grade. Like put a limit as opposed to here's an iPad for your two-year-old or your three-year-old. Put limits. And I think the reason, part of the reason why parents haven't put limits on technology in particular is because it's so new. I mean, yeah, it is so yeah. new. We've had the internet like for a couple of decades, right? And the device is even less time than that. So like they can't look back to their parents and be like, well, my parents didn't let me have an iPad until I was 16 because there were no iPads. 
Right. So that's education, right? Like that's just letting parents and educators know that there is a, a need for limitation. So yes, uh, that's one of many categories that we haven't quite caught on. So it's good that we limit smoking and illicit drugs, but like let's right. keep moving on the categories. If there's a parent listening right now, and I, I know you're a parent of three, so I'd love to hear your experience with this because I, I get this a lot too from people I know is that, listen, it's incredibly hard to have your child kind of prying over these things, feeling like an outcast because they mm -hmm. can't be on their phone all the time while every one of their friends is FaceTiming late into the night and doing things. And then they start to get depressed because of that, let's say, or feel like an mm -hmm. outsider. And then all the things that come with that stress and anguish. How are we able to kind of balance that? Because it is true. No one wants a child to be that kind of outcast that's too granola and, you know, not using uh, anything that that the, all the other kids are using and mm -hmm. coming in with their very different lunches when everyone's eating a certain way and doing all that. How are you doing and what's your advice to parents that are struggling with that? So when my kids were little, there were two things that I think helped insulate us from that feeling of being different from everyone else. They were community and courage. Mm -hmm. So community, I remember moving to a new town and I met some new friends when my kids were little, you know, like elementary school below. And these new friends, I got involved with a group that wanted to bring healthier food to the school. So I just, I was like, who's my people? I want to go find my people. So I found some people that cared about food. And then in conversations, two of these friends of mine decided they wanted to learn more about nutrition. So they went and became health coaches. And then we started having play dates with my kids and their kids. I was hanging out. My community was people who cared about the same things I did. So when my kids went over to their house for play dates, they, I was like, yep, they're going to feed them something healthy because they care about the same thing. So my kids are going to feel normal. The other part is, I said, is courage. And I remember going through that feeling when I first sort of changed my lifestyle and like woke up to what was happening to this generation of kids. It was because my own kids were sick and my own kids had issues. So I had to go through my own awakening. And then I felt like an outsider, like I'm doing things differently, cooking my own food. But the minute I started voicing it and being like, yeah, you know, I'm going to make my own sourdough starter and I'm going to make my own kombucha and just said it out loud, I mm -hmm. took courage. So I'm like, they're going to think I'm weird. But then somebody would be like, so how do you make kombucha? What is kombucha? What's that? You know what I mean? Like, that's what I mean about community and courage. The more you feel courageous about just, why do we have to feel like scared or intimidated about doing these things that are healthy for our bodies? You know, why do we feel scared to talk about it? That's the courage piece. But the community piece is find someone else who is doing this with you and wants to do this with you. You know, it could be a sister or a brother or, you know, just start somewhere with somebody who sees things the way you do. And if you can't find them, go out and find them. Like I said, I joined a group that was like trying to change the food in schools. Like, go find your people on the Internet and connect with them. And then you'll feel less alone and you'll feel that courage and that ability to say, I'm going to protect my kids and give them play like playmates that are on the same wavelength. Yeah, no, it's really good advice. And the one thing I'll say, because I grew up in a very different household where my parents were both doctors, they came from Europe, immigrated here and kind of had a more, you know, whole food mentality, no junk food there. They never grew up with it. So they passed that along to me to where mm -hmm. kids came over. They're like, oh, your kitchen sucks, man. Like, you know, let's let's ditch this place and go like eat the, you know, hostess cupcakes and everything at my place. Dentist. I grew up in the house of a dentist. Same thing. Okay. No yeah. sugar in the house. So I, I relate. Right. And and the thing is, listen, you survive. I wasn't like picked on that much because of it. You do grow courage and be like, hey, this is my parents' way. I do it my way. I know I'm different. I'll go over your place, have some of your crap and everything and 
keeping. But I will say this to any parent that's struggling with that and kid being like, I wish we had more junk food and everything. I am I, like once I got out of childhood, I was in such a better place to mm -hmm. carry on healthy habits because it was already my habit. I, I didn't have to even think about do I want the junk food and everything else as I grew older. And it left me in a place where I was healthier than a lot of my friends when they start reaching ages where it really starts to impact you. Maybe when you're a kid, you compensate for all the sugar and fat and you have a higher metabolism. But yeah, you get in your 20s, 30s, 40s and you keep eating that way. That's not going to be good. You will right. develop chronic disease then and you will live with that. And you'll say, why did that happen? And oh, Casper must have been lucky with his genes. Right. Like, no, yeah. <laughs> that stuff runs in my family too. We just didn't eat to trigger that epigenetically. Right. So you know, one of my favorite stories around that is, do you know, Jordan Rubin, he's the one mm. who started the Garden of Life and yeah. such a health guru, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the story is that he was raised by this hippie mom who, you know, fed him wheat germ and like all like no sugar in his house, no junk food. You know, his mom was super crunchy and just raised him in a holistic and natural way. So he went off to college. And apparently, you know, drank his face off, ate pizza, <laughs> like all the things that he was restricted from doing as a kid. Yep. And then got so sick. And that's where he developed Crohn's disease and was hospitalized, like nearly died in the hospital because mm. his Crohn's disease was so bad. But he always told the story, uh, at least that I've heard, where like it was the roots, right? His mom gave him the roots. So like he overcame yep. Crohn's disease. He became healthy and vibrant. And now he's got this enormous health and wellness brand. And mm -hmm. he you know, has all this incredible, you know, vibrant health teachings that he, you know, brings out to the world, but it, it's because his mom gave him the roots, right? Yes. So he, he went off and he made his own choices and he learned like, oh, this doesn't work. I can't eat like this. Yeah. I can't live this way. But he came back to the roots and he became healthy again. So like, I always like it for my own kids. I have three teenagers now. They're, you know, they're off doing their things. Sure. And I just have that faith that the roots that I gave them are going to be enough for them as adults to come back to. And you're living proof of that too. You had good foundations and roots and that has allowed you to live, you know, as a healthy adult. Big difference. Huge difference. It, it's, it's roots and also tools because I feel like everyone at one point in their life reaches a place where they're going to deal with a health issue, whether it's acute or something else or long-term, it could be depression after a major event or something like that. And then it does boil down to your foundation of roots and also the tools you have. Mm -hmm. So when I go into those places, because I'm not superhuman and always healthy and feeling happy, at least I could turn to those things. I could do some breathing exercises, meditation, EFT tapping, turn to my homeopathic supplements, everything else around there and say, mm -hmm. okay, this will catalyze me to come back to that healthy state. So mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things that people need to understand that getting sick isn't suddenly this curse of things. Everyone deals with periods in their life where they have downturns. It's mm -hmm. how you bounce back out of that and that you don't stay in that sick place and become chronically ill, and that becomes the permanent we talked about. But a lot of people are told it's permanent, right? Especially when you're dealing with children, because you go then to the pediatrician, you go to the specialist that find the diagnoses based off the symptoms, and then say, well, this is a permanent, we don't have solutions for that. What are you telling parents in that respect with Documenting Hope and all the work you're doing about, hey, this doesn't have to be, I know your doctor told you that, but there are other options and solutions out there where this doesn't have to be permanent. You know, how do you get into that with parents? Because I feel that's a big one because once they hear their doctor, their doctor is their everything. They have so much trust in it that they say, oh, well, it's permanent. 
Right. No, and I, it's tough because we want to trust our doctors. I mean, yeah. I've had doctors for myself and my kids that I've implicitly trusted, but we have to remember that they had, you know, one lane of training. And they may not have had the training that some other doctors or other types of practitioners have had that give them a different perspective. So I think we have to give our conventionally trained physicians grace because they know how to do a lot of stuff that's like acute medicine and surgery and all these things that are like are so important, but they weren't trained to deal with lifestyle driven chronic illness. They just no. weren't. Right. So there are all kinds of traditional methods where and traditional and traditions like a traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, like all these amazing practices out there that were trained to look at the body and how does it get in and out of a state of disease. The thing that I think compels people towards that other model is the stories. Mm-hmm. So there are thousands of anecdotal stories yep. of people reversing all kinds of chronic conditions. And this yep. is what documenting hope is about, is taking these anecdotes, these things we've heard about autism being fully reversed, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, mm-hmm. ADHD, diabetes, obesity, all of these conditions that most people, when they walk into their physician's office, will be told it's genetic, it's lifelong, here's a medication. But what do these anecdotal stories of reversal mean then? Are they not true? Are they made up? Of course not. It's just that nobody's studying them or nobody's trying to understand what happened. So we set out to better understand them. I've been collecting stories of all kinds of recovery for 15 years. Mm -hmm. We've documented them, you know, written the stories up. We have them on film and we're studying that process. We have another study. It's called the flight study where we're actually doing an intervention study where we're taking a small group of children who have a chronic health condition. And it's a prospective longitudinal study where we're enrolling them when they're sick and we're facilitating that their access to integrative holistic type practitioners and supports. And we're documenting their healing journey. You know, like what does it take to heal a kid from ADHD? What does it take to reverse autism? And we are learning so much. We know about so many amazing tools that are out there. They just haven't gone mainstream yet. So this is what I live for, is trying to bring all of these anecdotes into the mainstream. We call it mainstreaming miracles, right? Because Mm -hmm. that's what's happening. People are like, oh my God, this child was a severe nonverbal autistic child at age four. And now he's like, you know, going to a top university, has tons of friends and a girlfriend. Like, why is that not the standard of care? Like, why are we not examining those stories to get every little piece of detail about what that parent did with that child to get them from the point where they had a severe diagnosis to the point where they're completely a miracle in everybody else's eyes? So we are doing this work to try and document it, learn from it, learn from these anecdotes, and then scale it and get this information out to people so they know what to do when they get yeah. that diagnosis. I find that so critically important. Usually when I speak to any patient that's been giving a diagnosis that's so-called incurable, the one thing they really want to hear more than even the evidence, because the evidence led them to believe it's incurable because that's what conventional medicine has said and, you know, and been able to give them through their evidence. But the other side of that is the anecdotal side of those stories that doesn't have to be the truth. They're looking for someone else out there, not a plot and a study to be able to say someone was like me and got better. That Mm -hmm. to me gives me hope. That gives Mm -hmm. me the ability and a purpose to move and keep trying rather than just sit here in this kind of lifelong sentence of kind of misery and suffering. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've always loved about kind of sharing other people's stories. I'm sure you do as well, is is that Mm -hmm. that one story impacts so many others that were in that place and to begin with to say, if they could do it, I could do it too. 
Mm-hmm. So with that said, Beth, do you have any stories that really stick out for you that are just like, hey, this is a, a story I tell a lot of people that really was one of inspiration and hope? There are so many. I can't even yeah. tell you. I mean, I think the most stories that I've collected over the years are in the, the in autism in particular, because mm-hmm. autism is a complex condition, no doubt. And it's heterogeneous. It's like they say, if you've met one kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism, meaning that there are mm-hmm. some cases that are, you know, easier to resolve than other cases. There's all kinds of variables and complexity, but the parents that have a child with autism who are severely impacted, either nonverbal or have some kind of behavioral issues, maybe they're self-injurious, like something that is just breaking the parent, just breaking them. They are the most motivated, courageous. They have so much grit. These parents are amazing. They will stop at nothing to help their children. And so I've heard so many stories of like we have on our websites, we have stories of kids who had no language, there's one we just shared. We did a video and we shared it at our conference we had in November. This child had no language. He was diagnosed as severely autistic at three years old. And he had, talk about self-injurious behaviors. He was hitting his head all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, he had the stereotypical stimming, flapping, those kinds of things. And his mom followed the GAPS diet, the gut and psychology syndrome, Natasha Campbell McBride, which is basically she worked on healing the gut and just worked on getting nutrient dense food into him. And she did some other kinds of, you know, holistic therapies with him. And now he's a teenager and he's great. He's doing great. And his mom actually trains other parents. She's become a health coach and she's trained other parents how to implement the GAPS diet in their home. So I would say like that's one story. We have recorded some of these on our videos. So on our Instagram and YouTube, we have these videos and people can go in and watch them. But, you know, what's interesting to me and the thing that I've been really compelled to better understand is what do all these stories have in common? Mm -hmm. And I do not know one single story of, you know, condition reversal where the gut and the diet wasn't a centerpiece. And so you like, you know, a lot of times I hear, especially in the autism community, people will say, well, I tried the gluten-free, casein-free diet and it didn't work. Or, you know, I tried taking out, you know, dairy and it didn't work. Like, that's not what diet is. Diet is like comprehensive, you know, just putting only nutrient-dense food in, healing the gut, doing some real intensive repair there. Because kids who got to that point have, have such damaged gastrointestinal tracts that you really need to do intensive repair work. Yeah. So that's a through line. And that's one of many. Detoxification would be another through line. Absolutely. Uh, calming the nervous system, like finding ways, there's a million ways to calm the nervous system, as yeah. you know. Yeah. So that's another through line in all these stories. So to me, that where we're going with this is we're collecting the stories, we're collecting the data, we're testing a hypothesis about how healing happens. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to get to is a like, here's the recipe. Mm-hmm. Not Protocol. I don't believe in protocols because I believe right. in bioindividualism and everybody's path to sickness is going to look different and their path back to health is going to look different. But there is a recipe and the recipe is going back to what we originally talked about, getting as close to nature as possible, yeah. get back in those rhythms, eat food that your body needs, you know, to correct the deficiencies that have accumulated over time. Mm-hmm. So. In, you know, like uh, we're getting closer to being able to do that in a structured way to help people so they don't feel so overwhelmed. Yeah. No, there are absolutely patterns out there. I truly believe in personalization and tailored, you know, treatments, you know, generalized blanket protocols just don't work. We mm-hmm. are so individual. The root causes and underlying, you know, dysfunctions of us are so unique to us that you can't just throw a protocol at everyone expected to win. But there are patterns, like you said, if you, you know, 
help the gut out. If you detoxifying all these things, if you turn more to nature in general, you will see better outcomes. And it is that starting point to me is always like, what are you putting in on a daily basis to nourish or to harm? And most of the times it is harm. I don't know if you've seen the Netflix show, You Are What You Eat. It's kind of making the rounds right now. And I actually put it on last night because everyone was talking about it. And I saw so many people, you know, up in arms over it and what they were promoting. But, you know, what I gathered from that is people just don't have a good relationship with food. No. They don't understand quality. It's mm -hmm. not about whether plant-based or keto or whatever, you know, that the term you want to put to your type of diet is the one for you or the best one. Mm -hmm. What I realized is people just don't eat quality stuff. Right. You know, they were talking about, oh, conventionally raised chickens are bad and this, that. So it was conventional, you know, farming with pesticides, GMO, monocrops, not regenerative, depleted soil with no minerals in it. Right. It's like, right. oh, it, it comes down to quality. You know, mm -hmm. it's not the what you eat so much as what is the quality. And I think that's where a lot of parents get caught up on, you know, what type of diet, low fat, right? Because that's a marketing tool and diet is good. Diet soda is better than regular soda. It's like they're both crap, but I'd actually mm -hmm. rather have you drink regular soda, but just drink more water in general, right? And drink yeah. more fresh fruit juice, not from concentrate and all of that. So I feel like so much of this, it doesn't have to be so complex. If right. you start to understand quality in, quality out, that mm -hmm. will give you higher determination of repairing. And the one thing I'll say also about children, because I, I feel like a lot of people get that incurable genetic thing and just give up on children in a sense of, oh, they're going to live with it forever. I know this because I've spoken to so many pediatricians. My father's treated a lot of children as patients with autism and other things. They are the greatest patients because they're not yet encumbered with 20 years of toxic load. Right. They bounce back usually quite well. They don't have skepticism over certain things like, oh, I don't know about this, right? And every if they get that, it's from the parents who have the skepticism and pass it along. So they're perfect patients in many ways okay. that if you give them just the proper thing, their bodies are excited to get to homeostasis. Their bodies so just function, right? Haven't you seen the same? That yes. given the opportunity, even though the children that seem, oh my God, this is going to be big, can bounce through it quite quickly. Yes, they are. I mean, th think about this whole field of neuroplasticity where we've learned so much about how the brain adapts and changes. Like we're just learning that. But these parents yeah. of kids with autism have known this for like 30 years. They're like, yeah, you can actually change the brain. But children are so much more plastic, right? Like their bodies are so ready to heal. Like all you have to do is remove the obstacles to healing. And then in some cases, you need to go back and kind of rewire, right? Like again, mm -hmm. it, like for adults, they've already been through their developmental timeline. So like all those connections were made. So kids who were, you know, had these environmental assaults in those, those critical developmental times, you may need to go back and do some rewiring. Yes. So, but you can, and they and they pick it up so quickly. They're so ready to heal. And the thing I always say to parents too, like when they feel overwhelmed, like let's say they have a five-year-old who's a super picky eater and they just, I can't do this. It's too hard. He'll never eat. I say to them, there is no easier day to start these changes than today because the younger you start them, mm -hmm. the easier it is. You give me a five-year-old who's picky eater and a 15-year-old who's a picky eater, I'll take the five-year-old all day long yes. because that is so much easier to adapt and change behavior at that age than it is older. That's not to say the 15-year-old can't. I have a great story of a friend of mine who has had a son with autism and he was struggling, but 
kind of in the higher functioning area. So he was, you know, kind of had some help at school, but was kind of sliding by. And then he started hitting crisis when he, a lot of times this happens during puberty is that like a lot of the symptoms that were bad get worse. And so at 15, she decided she was going to do, when he was 15 years old, she was going to go work very closely with a functional medicine doctor. Mm -hmm. And she just hit it hard. And she's like, that's it. We're just going to make all the changes. And between 15 and 17, again, intensive like diet changes and detoxification and therapies. By the time he was 17, he lost his autism diagnosis, mm -hmm. starting at 15. So it's not to say that it doesn't happen. And I get emails all the time from adults who have an autism diagnosis who are, you know, again, more mildly affected because they're either verbal or they're able to hold a job, but they're still affected. They are starting to realize that they can improve their health and some of those symptoms they didn't like, this like the sensory stuff that drives them crazy, that can go away when they start helping support their body in the way that it needs to. So this isn't just about children. I mean, yeah. we talk about autism as if it's a childhood diagnosis. Why do we do that? Because it didn't really exist before the 1980s. Right. I mean, very, very small numbers, like one in yeah. 10,000 or two in 10,000 kids. So it is a childhood condition. But now you have the whole first wave of kids that really exploded in 1989, 1991. All of them are adults now. And they're on the internet and they're watching TikTok and there's TikTok videos that are like, yeah, I changed my diet and my sensory symptoms went away or, or whatever. So they're accessing this information too, which I think is they're the voice that we need the most because yes. they can speak as adults with authority. And there's another story I have of a great friend of mine whose son was diagnosed at two. By the time he was eight, he had lost his diagnosis. He was very complex and he had a lot of things. He had seizures and apraxia and all these horrible things that his mom had to help him navigate through. But he's now like 27, 28, graduate student at Brown, brilliant. He's an engineering student, has a girlfriend. And as actually, and we have a video of him talking about his experience. Like he remembers what it was like to have the symptoms that they called autism. Mm remembers what it was like going through it. And now he's a voice for these mm -hmm. kids, you know, and he wants them to know, like, it's not changing who you are. I don't want to change who you are because so much of autism is tied up with identity politics now. Yes. Like, you don't want to change me. I have autism and I'm proud of autism. That's fine. Nobody wants mm -hmm. to change you. We want to make your body as robust and healthy as possible. And if the symptoms that are bothering you, like the sensory symptoms, the social anxiety, the things that go with autism, if those go away, don't you want that? You know, that's the thing I think needs to happen is these adults who have come out on the other side and can speak to what it was like to be affected yeah. and then to tell people what it's like to have lost all those symptoms. Like, that's our greatest inspiration right there. Yeah, it really is such a, a message of, of hope, of course, and other things that parents need to hear. The one other thing I wanted to to talk to you and bring up about this is you know, you need to have a good doctor, you need to support your child, but don't you also believe, and from what you've seen, maybe you could talk about that anecdotally, that parents need to be, if there are two parents there, they need to be united front number one, because I do see sometimes the mother wants to go holistic, but the father's against it and says that's a waste of money, right? So that, and you need to practice what you preach. You can't tell a child to be, you know, don't be so stressed about homework, and then you come home yelling and stressed and pulling your hair out. Aren't those two really important things for parents to understand as they go through treatment with their child? Absolutely. So I have a couple of things to say about that. One, the first point you're talking about having your spouse on board. We have an online membership community where we help parents walk through the healing process and mm -hmm. we have like educational resources in there. And one of the videos we have in there, that's one of my favorites, the title is how to get your spouse on board mm. because it's such a barrier. It is such an incredible barrier for the mom who's like, I want to change the diet. And dad's like putting a pizza in his face in the corner while the kid's eating, you know, gluten-free right. 
paleo, whatever. That is such an incredible point. And I forget what the other thing I was going to tell you about, but I just feel like the 80% of parents who have kids with special needs in particular are going to end up getting divorced. It is such a stressful, stressful Mm -hmm. situation to have a child with special needs. There are resources for those parents. That's what I was going to say. It's about starting with yourself as a parent. There are resources Mm -hmm. for the parents who can help figure out how to get their spouse on board. You can work with a therapist or whatever, because Mm -hmm. that's absolutely fundamental. If you're going to go on this journey where you're going to change your diet and change your your culture at home. The other thing I was going to mention that is so, so, so important is that kids, especially little kids, they regulate their nervous systems in sync to their parents. So like it's oftentimes mother and child, but it can be father and child. So like you said, mom comes home and she's like all stressed and yelling about this. That child is like, like their nervous system is all of a sudden like locked into moms and like they're both like this. And I've seen this time and time and time again where because, I've again, I've been sort of walking people through this healing journey for 15 years. And like you get to this point where like, OK, you make diet changes, you change some stuff and get rid of the toxins in the home. Kids start and get it better. And then all of a sudden, like you hit this plateau. We're like, I'm not seeing any more improvements. We saw some initial gains in the beginning, and then we're not seeing any more improvements. Like, what's going on? Inevitably, it is always either the mom or the dad that needs to start working on themselves. Because a lot of times, especially mom, is like, I got to fix my kid. Like, this is unacceptable. How's he going to get into Harvard if he has ADHD? Like, this intensity to fix my child can actually be self-sabotaging because it makes mom and dad so ramped up. And again, like... The minute mom regulates her nervous system, mm-hmm. that child is going to get in sync with that. And it's a modeling, but there's also something bioenergetic going on too. Absolutely. Where that child is all of a sudden syncing up. So like the body cannot heal unless it's in a parasympathetic state. Yes. So if you as mom can put yourself into a parasympathetic state, that rest and digest state, and then child can feel that bioenergetically and puts themselves into a sympathetic state. Or even if you're just doing activities together, like a little yoga stretching. I know it sounds so like new age or like breathing exercises or expressing gratitude. Those are all things that put you into that parasympathetic state. Yeah. Like if you as a parent can model that, that is mm. so powerful. I think that's one of the secrets of the healing process that nobody believes is that the little things matter. Like I'll talk mm. about something like grounding or being outside in the sunshine, or turning your lights low at night, yep. or like little things that people are like, really? It's not an expensive supplement or therapy. How could it possibly work? <laughs> you know? Yep. But expressing gratitude, like there's tons of medical literature on how feelings of gratitude actually regulate your nervous system. They decrease your blood pressure. They decrease inflammation in your body, reduce oxidative stress. Like you can look up all this stuff. Walking in the forest does all the same things. But it's because it's simple, People don't believe that it's powerful. Yeah. But like overlooking the most powerful and simplest tools that we have in our toolbox. Yeah. In life and in healing, it's usually often the simplest things that have the biggest impact on us, right? Mm-hmm. And we forget that. We want the silver bullet sort of, you know, expensive, crazy idea that's going to do it all when it is. Just mm-hmm. simple little things every day, like you said. And I do truly believe that parents have such a big role, whether or not even it is genetic and all this, it's not to take blame as a parent and feel guilty that I allowed this to happen to my child. It's Mm -hmm. to step up and say, I'm going to be a role model for my child and I'm going to imbue them with this Zen-like state, with the support systems. And I'm going to take part of it myself because of Mm -hmm. course, 
kids are just sponges. They mimic, you know, their parents all the time. I see mm-hmm. my brother, you know, start getting all, you know, angry about something. And I see my nephew start become the Hulk and start doing running around. Be like, smash, smash, you know, it's just yeah. mimicking exactly what he saw in a different way, in a childish way, which is cute. But too much of that is never a good thing. You mentioned the program, the Healing Together program. Can you go into that a little bit more? Because I know that was something that you're providing as a great resource to parents and people. Yeah. So we've been providing educational resources for parents for 15 years, and we do webinars every month, put out mm-hmm. newsletters, have tons of resources on our website. You know, But we, for a long time, really felt like we need to get people together. Like We need to connect people because I was talking about this before. What were the two things that helped me on my journey? Community and courage, right? Mm-hmm. Like That really was important. So community is such a vital part of this whole healing journey, and we wanted to provide that to parents. Now, we're a virtual company. We're like a Across nine different states, and we literally are just on computers, you know, doing our work with each other. So we don't have a physical community. So we decided to create an online community to start. And the online community, again, it's called Healing Together. And we've created like a schemata, like a map. It's literally like a trail map to follow. If you're starting the healing journey, your child has a diagnosis, you don't know what to do. And we kind of mapped out the process, like where do you start and where do you go? And then we provide support calls. So we have uh, twice a month, we have a live Zoom call. One of those calls is with two integrative physicians who answer your questions One of those calls is with health coaches who also answer your questions. And it's an amazing dialogue. So we've gotten these parents together on these calls and they're all starting to get to know each other and we're navigating this together. It's really a beautiful, beautiful community. And the best thing happened in November. We held our first conference in in Orlando in November. And a lot of the members from that community showed up for the conference Mm. in person. The hugs were incredible. And it was just amazing because you actually got to see people in the flesh. Yes. I cannot overstate how important community is. So healing together is something that people can join and again, get the support and connection because it's all people who are doing the same work with their kids, changing their diet, you know, changing lifestyle, learning about different therapies. We talk about different kinds of therapies that can help integrate the brain and body and overcome those developmental challenges. So it's an incredible resource. I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of the people that show up there. They're just awesome people just doing it for their kids. It's really great. Yeah, you learn as you go through this, like everyone has a good intention to be happy, to be healthy, to try and help other people. It's just how do you get there? And there is a lot of confusion and what do you do and everything. But it's great to have these types of organization, events, resources, because it allows you to kind of go into that and start to funnel in that energy into something that's helping others and yourself. So mm-hmm. so thank you for all your work, Beth. And where can people learn more about the organization, Document to Hope, uh, Epidemic Answers, everything? Yeah. So we have a couple of websites to check out. Epidemicanswers.org is where we have all of our educational. It's like our resource library. Mm-hmm. We have, like I mentioned, newsletters and webinars. We have over 300 webinars that we've done with all kinds of experts across different categories. We have a practitioner directory. So if you're somebody who's like, I just have my regular pediatrician, but I'd love to work with a holistic practitioner, integrative functional medicine doctor, or a health coach. We have a health coach directory too. So mm-hmm. we have over 800 practitioners in our directory. So you can probably find somebody in your area And then we have a health coach training program. So we train health coaches how to help parents navigate this journey. And then documentinghope.com is our research-specific site. So we have the two studies, the CHIRP study and the flight study. The CHIRP study is going to, we've been running it since 2018, collecting data. It's on pause right now just because we're upgrading the software. We're going to launch it again in April. So parents can come in 
this survey is amazing because not only do you contribute your information to help the body of research trying to understand what the you know most important environmental factors are that are impacting our kids, but after you complete the survey, you get a personalized report. And this personalized report is like basically feeding back all of your answers, but we highlight all of the health stressors. Right. So basically can take a look and be like, this is like a blueprint for reducing my child's total load because we yeah. we highlight in orange anything that is like, let's say you're using fragrance laundry detergent. Don't do that. That's bad. Right. It's got bad stuff in it. Like right. just pointing to the things in your life that you can easily swap out or you can easily change to help reduce your child's child total load. So that information is all in Documenting Hope. We have all kinds of success stories on our YouTube channel. So at Documenting Hope or Instagram. And Facebook, we also put those stories out. So kids who have reversed ADHD, gotten over mm -hmm. severe eczema, autism, like all the stories you'll see on those channels as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for sharing this and sharing your story and sharing the stories of so many others. Because I know that those stories of hope are what get so many people over the hump and get them back to their health when they feel completely lost. So thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. And as you heard, do check out documentinghope.com and epidemicanswers.org for more information and be sure to sign up for their science back program, Healing Together at healing.documentinghope.com slash register. Until next time, continue writing your own healing story. <laughs>